0: You're drowned by my perfect fire Come back thigh. to me With all your heart Are we really Don't sp- let love tear us apart
1: Don't let fear tear us apart, right? It's not love tearing us apart
0: Love, it is a river <laughs> That doesn't seem to flow Stop.
1: You are in rare form today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast. We are the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell.
0: My name is Father Peter. Okay, that's not even funny anymore. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> I'm, I'm Father Peter. Mustard. There's
1: certain things where you, if you keep going with them long enough, they become funny again.
0: Dude, absolutely. And and I could feel that the love is going to take a while for that. Yeah, one. yeah. I It's like, yeah.
1: Well, it is the third Sunday of Lent. Welcome everyone to the podcast. We're happy to have you here.
0: I just feel bright and sunny. It was like the day started off wonderful, and so I have like sunshine in my heart. And then it got cloudy.
1: Just now. Yeah. So, so I, does your heart have cloudiness now?
0: I know. I'm like a solar cell with a capacity a capacitation. Capacitary, dude. Capacitation is when you store electronics. Electricity in a capacitor. <laughs> so the, t- the, the, so flux the flux cap-
1: capacitor is
0: is a capacitor that is fluctuating in flux all the time.
1: Oh my gosh! You guys, um, we're both sort of fried. It's the uh, oh. well, it's only one thirty on Wednesday. <laughs> it
0: feels like a long week. Yeah, that's because we got the podcast started a half an hour late.
1: We had a lot of business to take care of pre-podcast, we're so you guys a- are catching us in rare form.
0: And we're doing a Catholic Link webinar webinar on, a- on April eighth. So we had to do like an introduction. to <laughs> We it.
1: had to film like a little, a little tiny promo video for it, which. If you've ever had to do something like that, I mean we there's probably like
0: 18 takes on that and they were all equally stupid. It is the third Sunday of Lent, which also is the St. Joseph husband of Blessed Virgin Mary feast day. But St.
1: Joseph husband of but it's not the feast day of St. Wait. Yeah,
0: it's the feast of St. Joseph. Yeah, normally we could <laughs> we get
1: to fast. Usually from, it's just called the feast of St. Joseph. Oh yeah, but uh, nor- I've never heard the the full title before.
0: St. Joseph husband of Mary, but this is the thing. Is um, normally you'd get to be relieved from your fasting on that day, but no, it's Christmas on was on Sunday. Sunday, so you can always I determine. Know. But it is, is partly of the leap year and all that stuff. We
1: also sit in one of the only di- one of the few dioceses, not the only one of the few dioceses that does not give a dispensation for eating corned beef on Saint Patrick's Day.
0: I'm having problems with my microphone. Clearly,
1: I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, works for the Archdiocese of Denver, right? Aod but, in our parlance, but he lives down in Lone Tree, which is a suburb of Denver. For those of you who are not familiar, and if you know the the line that divides the diocese of, of the archdiocese of Denver from the diocese of Colorado Springs, goes right through his town. So he works in the archdiocese of Denver, but he lives and goes to his church in the arch in the diocese of Colorado Springs, which does have a dispensation for corned beef on St Patrick's Day.
0: Which means that I, when people ask me, I just say, just go south of C-470 and you're living large. And eat it up.
1: Yeah. So he can eat it at home, but not at work.
0: Yeah. So it's like, uh, you can't eat it at um, Flatiron, not Flatiron's Mall, it's a, what's Park Meadows. Park Meadows. But you can eat at the adjacent place. The place is just this is itself. why the church gets a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> because of this kind, <laughs> this kind of nitpicky discussion. Anyway. No, come on. Oh the, what else would we have to do in mm. life if we didn't like nitpick the law <laughs> just to make sure we Get away with stuff. I need
1: my corn beef. I'll eat my corn beef. All right. Our first reading this week is coming from speaking of speaking of getting angry about food and <laughs> drinking. <coughs> that does apply. All right. Our first reading is from the book of Exodus. Exodus. Chapter seventeen, verse three through seven. Water from the rocket, Horeb.
0: Move <laughs> people. Then our <laughs> psalm is the ninety fifth one. That's right. And it's verses 1 and 2, and then 6 and 7, and then the 8 and the 9, and then we have one that is in the 8, which is responsing.
1: That's a good Roman, I mean, German accent. <laughs> it's a great Roman accent. That's a
0: great Roman accent. <laughs> great Roman accent. Dude, I, I can I educate you? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the Germanic tribes, the northern.
1: Ah, uh, thank yeah. you. I appreciate yeah. it. Our second reading, speaking of which, is from the Book of Romans. What do you know? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and then jumping to verse 5 through 8. All about hope.
0: And then our gospel is... A long one. A longer Do form. Do they...
1: Is there a short form?
0: Yeah, you can short form it. dude. Wait. You can always short form it. Oh,
1: there it is. All right. Uh, our first reading is from Exodus. This is... Okay. Oh, there's so much to say. Father Peter, Thirsty I have so people. much in my heart that I want to share with the world.
0: Dude, you've got a lot in your heart. And I feel colorful and like sunshine in my heart. I'm a, I've got capacitation. Yeah. So let me shine my light upon you and let you speak your words.
1: All right. Uh, Exodus 17, it's the story of the water from the rock at Horeb. So if you remember the story, we are um in the book of Exodus, so we're we're just after the we're just really at the moment that Israel has been released from their captivity in Egypt. Remember the 10 plagues, the Passover, the you know the slaying of the firstborn son. All this stuff has happened. They've crossed the Red Sea. Uh-huh. In chapter 15, Moses sings his great song of redemption, right? The song of Moses that we've been saying, or of Miriam, right? It's Moses' sister that sings it. So there's this great song of salvation. God has set us free. We're not slaves anymore. We've crossed over. He's showed us these miraculous events. He's parted the waters. He's brought these plagues upon our enemies. And now here we are. And they get to the other side of the Red Sea, and there begins what um, Professor Mayan always said the worst family road trip in history. <laughs> Where they're just, you know how everyone just whines in the backseat in family road trips? That's yeah. all of Israel for 40 years. Are we there yet? Is there any water? We're really hungry, Moses. Which I just always, you're not amused at
0: all. No, I'm totally amused. But I, I well, because I'm just trying to fit in my joke <laughs> that I've been waiting to tell you, which is you're, what you're saying. It's a horrible, uh, it's a horrible road trip. Yes,
1: we're going to a place called Horeb. You should have held on, hold on to that. We're not in Horeb yet.
0: Huh? Well, Did we say I, Horeb yet? Yeah, we said because that's a good
1: one. You, that's a really. Come on, been, I'm, I'm trying to build you up because that was a good one. Thanks, buddy. You bet, man. I really, <laughs> I mean I, it. I do. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, in between, uh, chapter brr, I don't know, um, fifteen, when they actually sing this hymn of redemption, and um. About chapter 24 or so. So right in between this point is what the ancient Israelites, the rabbis, called the Ten Complaints of Israel. So there's ten specific times where Israel will whine, basically, right? Which they said, of course, is sort of the juxtaposition to both the Ten Plagues, where God was tenfold faithful, They're tenfold whiny. And then, of course, the Ten Commandments, which is coming on the other side. So there's kind of this giant chiasm of the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, God working in these mighty ways. And right in the middle, ten whines or ten complaints of Israel. Sort of juxtapose what God is doing and our frail, human, whiny response to it. Which is a fascinating paradigm to look at this in. Do you
0: think that there's some uh, connection to the um, parable of the ten virgins? Probably.
1: <laughs> I, 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 it's, a, it's
0: a great question. I don't. I, I, I don't. Know. I've never. It's, considered, worth, it's it. worth exploring. I mean, I'm just throwing it's it out exploring. there. It's worth
1: exploring. I just don't know off the top of my head. I, I'm. I I'm excited to explore that. Me too. All right. Um, but for now, out of those ten uh, complaints, there are what are called. It's kind of whittled down to three. So do you remember last? Was it last week we talked about? Um, Mo, or Abraham. Abram, rather, in the first reading, was given the sevenfold blessing. You're going to be a blessing and those who you bless will be blessed and those who you curse will be cursed and you love land, blah, 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 right? But out of those sevenfold blessing, there were three aspects of it that would be elevated to the status of covenant, right? The land, the name, the dynasty, and the worldwide blessing, which is what we kind of carry forth from that. So in a similar way here, there's 10 complaints of Israel. But out of those 10 complaints, they are what we call the three cries of Israel, okay. the three cries. And I think there's so much mileage here for the sacramental life and the New Testament and everything else. So do you remember what the three major—it's the three biggest complaints— all center around three aspects. So okay,
0: no water. Water is one. No, um, no. Hold on, let's see. And then no quail. Water's the second one, actually. No, no. Or meat. no is
1: water the first? No meat. Yep, meat.
0: No honey. Well, you know it. No, no? not honey. <laughs> no car. We're out of No cereal. money, no honey, no car. Uh, that <laughs> was that was the, a, the, the a rap. Yeah. One of your one
1: of your kiddo it's rap the, songs.
0: It's the celibate uh, thing. So
1: what is it? No money, no honey, and no.
0: Oh, it's poverty, chess, and obedience. <laughs> What's the obedience? I can't remember. Oh, okay.
1: Um, it's so, bread.
0: Bread? Bread, meat, and water?
1: Bread, meat, and water. Those are the three cries, which, you know, it's one of those things, if, you, if you've studied this or heard talks on this, this sort of the bread and butter that everyone loves to kind of rip on Israel. And even I was doing it. They're whining. They're like kids in the back of a car on a road trip. It's, it's a pretty condescending way to talk about them. But if you think about it, at the same time, um number 1 I mean the reason we do that is how quickly they fall into this they've literally just experienced this miracle of walking through the sea and then on the other side they're 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 forgetful and whiny but at the same time we're in the wilderness where You know, in the wilderness of the Middle East, the Sinai Valley, Sinai Peninsula, if that's where they are, there's dispute. But, you know, it can get upwards of hundreds of degrees, you know, uh, uh, over 100 degrees in the daytime. It's brutal. Crying out for water doesn't seem that
0: unreasonable, right? Dude, that's what I'm saying. I mean, even if it was, like, 90, (laughs) I mean, mean, you don't even need to get above 100 for you to be – because, like, people die – Yeah, I mean, I've gotten dehydrated and and like, you know, dehydration brain is like people are not doing good,
1: which is how it's an appropriate way to read Israel here. Because they're—and this is—I think it's important because you can kind of see where they're coming from. But at the same time, what they do is still not right. And if you just read what they say, it says in those days, their thirst for uh, water—in their thirst for water, the people grumbled against Moses. So it's not that they're just thirsty and they're like, we really need some water. Like, this is hard. They're grumbling and angry at Moses, and they say things like, why did you make us leave Egypt? It's not just that they're thirsty. It's not just that they're upset. It's that they're saying, actually, slavery is way better than being thirsty. Mm. And that's that's where you get to the, like, wait a second, that's a valid complaint. But you want to go back to your slavery? You want to go back? And they keep talking about how great it was in Egypt and how wonderful it was over there. And so God says to Moses, okay, I want I want to— really, it's in this section of Exodus that God wants to— re- he's already revealed himself to Israel as Redeemer, Right he has saved them from their enemies and now he wants to reveal himself as provider so he says i'm going to meet your needs and i kind of needed you to feel those needs in an acute way so that you can see me provide for them right uh, yahweh jaira um th- the lord will provide yeah that's what abram abraham at that time names the mountain on which he was called to sacrifice isaac yeah. where the lord provided a ram right yeah on this mountain the lord yeah very good very good job. Hey, thanks. that sounded condescending. I wasn't thanks. meant to.
0: That's okay. I, I, I actually didn't think it sounded condescending. Oh, good. Okay. I, but I, now that I've pointed you, it out, you, everyone else you does. just smiled when you translated it. I actually knew that because I believe in the providential way, man. I'll tell no, you. You're the I best. mean, talk, talk about a spiritual principle for our lives, period. Sometimes the need actually has to develop so that we can have confidence yes. so that when the Lord answers, we get that it's the Lord. It's like yes. the glory of the Lord is meant to actually be because um, yeah. if you've ever tried to give somebody the answer to a question they haven't asked they yeah. don't really care that's true 42 that's the that's the number of everything dude <laughs> oh nice. this is this is the whole show of jeopardy
1: <laughs> giving the answer to a question that has not been asked anyway
0: that's, sorry that's neither here nor there dude and isn't 42 according to hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy the answer to everything yes
1: i think so it is that's why i said that and that's why let's I go keep let's go with that with being why yeah. i said that okay Um, okay. So, so God recognizes this. He says to Moses, okay, here's how we're going to deal with this. You go over to that rock over there. See that rock? I want you to strike it with your staff and it will start to spring water. And it's uh, apparently, I mean, this is a huge group of people here. We're talking about a whole nation and it's a mixed multitude. So there's Egyptians, there's other nations that, I mean, this is a lot of people. I don't know how big this rock was. But however big this rock was, it's giving out water that's able to sustain all of these people. So this is a pretty big deal. So he strikes the rock, he gives them water, and it's named Meribah and Massa, which means, what, testing and, and um, whining or something? But it has to do with testing and being tested and, and unsuccessful at that. Um Where they, to remind them, we didn't buy it. We didn't really believe it. We were super skeptical and whiny, but the Lord provided for us anyway. And it's this reminder that's supposed to sustain us. Now, of course, all of this should remind us, especially in the season of Lent, of Jesus out in the wilderness, who is also thirsty, who is also enduring this testing and this temptation, but of course is faithful. Now, here's what I learned that I found interesting, and I've never seen this before. Okay. The Rock of Horeb shows up twice. In, uh, in the Old Testament. Do you oh. remember the second time? And I know that you do. So here's this time
0: God provides. Isn't it uh, the second time when Gideon is getting his army and they have to like no. lap it up with the, their tongues? or? Dishes? No, no, that happens. I don't think that's the same thing, though. That's not a Mirabem Asa? It
1: has to do with Moses again. It's a very important moment, at least in Moses' life. Oh, do you remember?
0: It's not a horrible moment? It is a horeb moment moment Uh, now you
1: pulled out again good job
0: well was it the first time that he um came through the desert because i know that he did did, i mean when he left egypt he had to come through this desert once didn't he uh no it's not that yes that's true but that's not it don't know it's um
1: it's recorded in the book of numbers i think it's Numbers chapter 20 but they come back to this rock again and god tells moses to um basically well It's the rock of Horeb that will cause Moses to never enter the promised land. Oh, because he's supposed to speak to the rock, but he hits the rock. But he he strikes it because he was frustrated. Because people once again are grumbling. They're once again forgetful that God actually takes care of them. They're whining. He gets mad. He strikes the rock. It bears water again. Everyone has water. They're sustained. Their thirst is quenched. Everything's great.
0: And then the Lord says, because you did this, your butt ain't ever going in a promised land, bro.
1: (laughs) Right. Until the transfiguration, which is a different... Which was story, last week. Which was last week. But um, so I don't I don't really want to talk about Moses' punishment or whether that was just or not or how to deal with that. What I want is that, and I, I I read this in a book that Tim Gray had writ, had written a long time ago. And I'd never thought of this before. But he used I don't know if it was him or if he leaned on somebody else, but he used the water from the rock at Horeb as um, sort of a, a foreshadowing or an archetype maybe of what the sacraments are, specifically the Eucharist. So think about this. There is the first occasion here in Exodus 17 where Moses has an action. He strikes the rock, and that striking, that action causes the rock to bear forth water that's going to give life to people.
0: After that,
1: he doesn't need to strike the rock anymore. That's his flaw is that he struck it when he didn't need to. All he needs to do is simply speak the word because the action that was already performed has already enacted this rock to provide water. And all he needs to do to tap into that already existing reality is speak the word and the water flows again. And he uses an analogy for the sacraments. So, you know, it's it's the whole Catholic thing that we don't believe when Catholics go to mass that we're re-sacrificing Jesus again and again and again on the altar. Jesus was sacrificed once for all. And the words that you speak are enough to make that present to us again which I thought was a really cool analogy.
0: Dude, that is Isn't it? Powerful good.
1: Yeah, I never I'd never seen that before, but it was a really understandable way of wrapping our minds around the sacraments.
0: I cuz it think makes present something. Yeah, and yeah. and also why it's um I mean, why it's actually significant that you don't that he was really not supposed to hit it. I mean, like right. you could see how like the Lord had a really beautiful plan. And how Moses had a bad day and caused some real issues, yeah, of, that have long-term consequences. That if we understand them, I mean, at least the Lord like did have an opportunity for us to see that. But like, it's taken a lot of weeding through to get there.
1: It's probably a terrible analogy, fueled by too much Red Bull. But I just imagine you showing up at Mass, me like, I don't know if Mass is going to work this week, so I'm going to slaughter a lamb in the church instead, just to make sure. Like you don't have to do that any longer. Oh, it's kind of the equivalent, though. Or, it's like I don't really buy that this is going to happen. My word is not going to make this water come out. I've got to strike it again. Or it's Jansenism. It is kind of Jansenist,
0: and and it's also it's almost like, the, like
1: like the 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 guys. What is in the Jansenism, Philippines? Father Peter?
0: Uh, it's like the guys in the Philippines who crucify themselves on Good Friday, right. like and you know bleed out and like do the thing, like feeling like they need to do this again. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's a better
0: example. It's like no, you don't you actually Jesus was sacrificed once for all. You don't need to. we don't uh, uh, it's like the the Protestant complaint like do you re-sacrifice Jesus every exactly. time and you're like no, no, yep. no, no, we're just entering into the eternal moments. It's, a it's card.
1: your word that represents it. dude, that's to us. that's a
0: really it's cool. significantly beautiful. Thank so you. I credit I credit Dr. Tim Gray for that. I just What
1: up, Tim? And it was one of those things that's this kind of one of his more obscure books. It was just kind of in passing and I was like that's really amazing. So, anyway, Which takes us to Psalm 95, which if today, think about the connection here. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. It's going back to the word. Uh Moses doesn't trust the word of God will be Uh efficacious, at least coming out of him. So what does he do? In a certain sense, he hardens his heart. And he waxed that rock. Again, I want to make this all about Moses because, again, what are the people doing? Well, they saw this event. They heard the words of God spoken through Moses. They, too, hardened their hearts so that the place became Meribah and Massah, so they could always remember, oh, yeah, we didn't hear the voice of the Lord. Or we heard it and we ignored it, and we hardened our hearts instead. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why this psalm ends by saying... uh, Oh, that today you would hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as at Meribah and on the day of Massa in the desert, where your fathers tempted me. They tested me as though they hadn't seen my works, literally as though they hadn't literally just crossed a sea that I had parted for them. (laughs) <laughs> Which is so shocking and kind of absurd to us, mm. but again, we do that in all sorts of ways every day. I mean, there's so many ways that God saves us from ourselves or whatever it is, or brings beauty out of a hard or bad situation, and then we turn around an hour later and sin against Him and forget that. Oh yeah, He did totally take me out of that, or provide for me, or my life, or my family, or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. That was my whole homily this last weekend. Oh, see, I wasn't at your masses. You did the evening ones. Yeah. Um, the other thing I just want to say about the Psalm, there's a theme that runs throughout the Psalm, both that God works through his elect, like people like Israel, and he works through creation. And I think that those two uh, kind of tandem themes that show up in Psalm 95 are really, again, applicable for the first reading, because he's trying to show his elect, Israel, the people of God, the light to the world, through what? Through creation, through matter that this is how he's going to provide for the world, which all of it is so utterly sacramental that it kind of makes my head spin because what are the sacraments? They're things made through matter. Are there ways that God... Enacts his grace in the world through material things, through water, through bread, through wine, through oil, through human hands, through the words of forgiveness and confession, all of this material stuff, which is what Psalm 95 is all about, that God uses his stuff to show forth his glory. And that's so profoundly evident in the story of the rock at Horeb. Thirst, sacrament, complaining. Maybe that's the name of the podcast. Thirst Sacrament
0: Complaining. Because it, it
1: does flow through all the rest of them.
0: Yeah. Flow. <laughs> Get it? Uh, like water. Um,
1: Thanks, man. All right. The second dude, reading.
0: That was, dude, you've got a, you got sweet flow, bro. Whatever, dude.
1: Second reading comes from Romans. I am convinced, this is part of my doctoral dissertation for the Peter. Talk to me, Ace. That uh, this passage from Romans is the heart of Paul's, all of Paul's theology.
0: Romans 5 is big, man. its I mean, I, I've had a lot of conversations this year about the importance of Romans 5. Have actually. you really? Yeah, yeah, a lot of people. I even had somebody the other day, and I, I said something, and they were like, Romans 5. Nice. It's a powerful passage. Thank you. <laughs>
1: You're welcome. So he begins by saying, brothers and sisters, since we have been justified by faith, remember what justified means for Paul? We sometimes, It comes into the family of God. Yeah, we confuse this because of the language that surrounded the Reformation and modern Protestantism and, and American Christian thought justified, sal- justified, saved, redeemed. They're all these kind of amorphous weird words that kind of blend together for us. Yeah. But for Paul in the first century Jewish concept to be justified didn't, didn't mean to be saved. It didn't just mean to go to heaven when you die. It didn't mean any of those things. It meant to be justified meant exactly what you said, entrance into the family of God. Mm. You can enter into the family of God and still blow it and go to hell or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doesn't really apply to that. I mean, obviously it's part and parcel, but justified means how do you this is the the debate of Paul's letter. This is where I think so many of us today misread Saint Paul, misunderstand Romans, I think his most important theological book, because we think it's a book all about how to get to heaven when we die. But really it's a book about how do you get into the covenant family of God.
0: Ooh, now we're talking.
1: Which is in the Old Testament, it was through circumcision. It was through this action. In the New Testament, it's through baptism, with grace working through that. And we become—because what's—and the reason I point that out, the reason that's so significant is that when we make it about what happens to us when we die, these letters and these words become kind of escapist to us. Mm. It doesn't really matter what's happening now because I just hope that someday I can get out of here and go and be with him in heaven. Which is good. We should hope for that. Right. But I also hope that I could live out the life he has for me right here and now today because I am a son of the true living God. Yeah. That's justification. It's here and now I am called to live out his grace and his mercy and all of those things. And that's what's so much more important for Paul than merely what happens to you when you die. That's important. Right. But it's a here and now deal. Again, why does this apply? Well, it applies because for the Israelites, they're a little too concerned about the right here and right now. I am thirsty at this moment, and I cannot see outside of that. I'm hungry at this moment, and I cannot see outside of that. Um, And what Paul goes on to talk about—well, here's what he says. Here's here's the image that I love. I love this image because somebody that I studied under years and years and years ago wrote— Or drew a crude little drawing on the chalkboard, and it's always implanted itself in my head. But what Paul goes on to say since we have been justified through faith, we have peace, shalom, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has reconciled the break between God and humanity. We have peace again. Through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have gained access by faith. In the hope, uh, to we've gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand. This grace in which we stand always resonates with me. And so the image I always get of this person who wrote this on a chalkboard, they drew a little picture of a snow globe with a little person standing inside. So imagine you're standing inside of a snow globe that's shaken up. And what's the stuff falling all around you? It's God's grace. And now you have access to literally just reach out and touch and grab all of this grace that is surrounding you, that is falling upon you like snow in a snow globe, that is surrounding you. You are standing in the midst of it. Just accept it. Take it. Partake. And I'm picturing that, that scene, that image that's implanted in my mind reminds me of what's happening with Israel in the desert. They have no concept of really what God has done because for them, it seems like this distant, far off, powerful, you know, I, uh, I don't know, just sort of far off reality instead of just no, just just take it. God has set you free. You're free. Claim that identity. It's right there. You're standing in the middle of your freedom. Oh, you're thirsty. Here's water. He'll provide it for you. You're really hungry. A flock of quail will fly over you and start falling from the sky. And
0: I'll give you banana bread.
1: And banana bread and manicotti and mm, uh, manowitches. witches -witches. (laughs) And all you have to do is literally reach out and and gain access to this grace in which you stand. Yes. And I don't know. The imagery is so striking to me because how often do we feel so alone, so isolated, so cut off, so lonely? And we forget that, no, I'm actually in the presence of God's grace. Yeah, All I need to do is tap into it. I've got it. I am in the middle of God, the heart of God, as long as we're in the state of grace and all that, but, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's so easy to forget because we can't see it. It's like you're in a snow globe, but you actually can't see the snow. But you can touch it and you can feel it and you can experience it. Yeah. You experience it, but I don't know. It's like being much in a, mileage there,
0: but it's like being an aqua- in an aquarium. It's just actually you're totally immersed in it, and sure you can jump out of the tank, mm. but times get real hard when you're <laughs> you a jump fish. out of the tank.
1: Yeah, that's a good analogy too.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, there's just an aquarium right behind your head, yeah, as you're is. talking about it, a very nice one. Thank you very much.
1: But yeah, he goes on to talk about the hope that does not disappoint. You're not going to be disappointed. I imagine those people, uh, people in Israel, you know, thinking. I, <laughs> I had a a really, you know, with another aspect of our ministry, I had a great meeting this morning about something that we're trying to do here in our ministry. And I mean, you saw me afterwards. My main response is just skepticism. I know. And I want, I, I'm sitting there, I'm like, I really want to be optimistic about this, but my pessimism is kind of getting the best of me. I imagine these people in Israel, like, we really crossed the Red Sea. I mean, this was amazing. I want to hope that this is real and this is true and we're being led somewhere, but I'm real thirsty and everybody around me is complaining. Maybe we're going to be disappointed. This seems really good, but I bet we're going to be let down by it. Mm. This is all a farce. This right. is all kind of led us up to this thing for nothing. We're going to be let down. Mm. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, no, no, no. True hope does not disappoint. You will not be disappointed. Trust me. Keep walking. Keep moving forward. There's going to be water. There's going to be birds to eat. There's going to be bread. There's going to be manna. Keep walking. Keep walking. Because you're not going to be disappointed. I don't know. I just, it's so uh, striking to me the way he says that. Yeah. That's all I got there.
0: Dude, which leads us into the desert. Takes us right to Sikar. To Sikar, to a woman who is also thirsty. <laughs> yeah, a thirsty to, woman. and And a thirsty man.
1: Yep, in the desert, quite frankly.
0: That's what I said.
1: Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, well, it's a good, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good one. Yeah. So it's the famous story of the the Samaritan, the woman at the well. Is how it's kind of commonly understood. The Samaritan woman at the well. It's John four.
0: the woman who's not well. Ah, she's not well.
1: There's all these. Oh, this this story is so great. There's so many. I'd love to just. We don't have the time for it, but I'd love to just like go line by line because this is one of those oh, ones that you can yes. just dig. So Jesus came to this town in Samaria. Samaria, What's Samaria? Samaria, remember,
0: is the muggle place. It's the, the place with. Yeah. it's a, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a um, mudblood uh, for the Harry Potter fans out there. It's those who are uh half, that, are those like
1: Klingons? No,
0: they're half Jewish. I'm just half, trying to take
1: off all the nerds. Yeah.
0: They're, like they're the not place. Klingons. Stop saying Klingon. No, it's the <sighs> the people who are, um, are half Israelite, half Canaanite nation folks. Yep. those are the Samaritans the is inter- intermarried with yep. the nations it's 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 uh, S- half Jews
1: so Samaria specifically was the capital city of the kingdom that broke away when Israel divided in its civil war right oh. so it's and, and in the time of uh, in the time of the breaking you remember when the the kingdom divided the, the the nation of Israel divided two tribes and ten tribes they had their big break their civil war. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, which wandered far from God. And they created their own temple system and stopped worshiping the true God, ordained their own priests, created their own liturgical calendar. They went pretty far off. Okay, so so it's
0: not just that they had married with the nations, but that Samaritans— That was the icing on the cake. Okay, so really for them, it was like like, um, somebody who had apostatized— and well, th- then proclaimed the apostasy and said, like, this is who we are and this is how we're going to be. And, and in your face,
1: this is a, I I find this a fascinating story. So I just was going over this and I do that Bible study with the focus team. And we were talking about this last week. Yeah. It's a fascinating story. So, you know, when the kingdom divides in two, God actually says, because really of the sins of Solomon, he's like, look, this kingdom is going to be ripped out of your hands and I'm going to give actually authority to somebody else. So he calls this guy named Jeroboam to lead the 10 tribes up in the North and to kind of basically be a slap in the face to the the sons of David to say, look, this is pretty bad. You need to reconcile. So there's this whole kingdom that's formed and Jeroboam, who is the king at the time, who was, who was given this authority by God. That's clear that God has actually given him the authority to lead this group of Israelites. He, his life kind of goes on. You start to see him descend into fear because there's this juxtaposition always in the Old Testament between acting out of faith and acting out of fear. And he's up there and he starts thinking to himself, well, wait a second. God has given me this part of the kingdom as my own to lead and be faithful with. But I know that everybody in my kingdom in these northern 10 tribes, by Jewish law, three times a year, every Jew has to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the temple on those three pilgrim feasts, right? So he says, you know, every time people from the northern kingdom go back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice at the temple, their hearts are going to be swayed back to that part of the kingdom. And what if they start to forget about us? And what if I start to lose my authority? Because they're all going back to the temple and they'll all be aligned with the Davidic king again, the southern kingdom, and they'll love Jerusalem. So I don't want them to go back to the temple anymore. I don't want them to worship God down there because I'm afraid that will lead their hearts away from me and my authority. So he decided to start his own temples. So he created a temple in Bethel and one up in Dan from border to border of his territory. And he brought in false gods and he ordained new priests who were not Levitical priests. And he created a whole new liturgical calendar. He created this alternate liturgical universe that was not Jewish any longer because he feared that, you know, the sympathies with the southern kingdom. It's really ugly. It is. And he that, brought that'd in all be a these... good
0: episode title or or just like a, a good album name. Which? Um, alternative liturgical universe.
1: Alternative liturgical universe. So that's the primary re- I mean, first and foremost, that's why the Israelites, are, the, the the Jewish people, rather, are like, yeah, the northern kingdom stinks. They're a bunch of jerks. They apostatized. They were super public about it. Samaria was their capital. By Jesus' time, Samaria is a region, but in that time it was a city. But so, yeah, And then, and then later on, of course, Assyria comes in, destroys the northern kingdom and force uh, it doesn't seem like it was that hard of a sell but they forced the northern kingdom to intermarry with those five other nations so that their blood gets the bloodline gets lost israelites there's no distinguishing those 10 tribes anymore and the whole national identity fades away but for the jewish people that was just the icing on the cake that was their punishment because they apostatized because they walked away because they they wandered far from god
0: because they went off roading.
1: They went off roading, which you should never do liturgically.
0: No liturgical off road. Maybe
1: that's a good title too. <laughs> it's
0: of so it. anyway, so that's where
1: Jesus is, and and yeah. it's clear in the Gospels that the Jewish people hate the Samaritans for yeah. lots of good reasons. You can kind of see why. Yeah, for sure. So there was this woman. He, that a well. It says it was about noon. It's really significant that it was about noon. Because hot it, as
0: h- the hinges of Hades. Hot as the
1: hinges of Hades. I mean, seriously, if you've ever, if any of you guys listening have been to the Middle East. You know, in the middle of the day. This is the time of day that could literally kill people. It's so hot. So you didn't go to a well at noon. So that means if this woman's unless going to the well,
0: you, unless you were trying to avoid something, right? Exactly. Or someone, or avoid other people at the well. Yeah. Because, like, you know, you everybody got to get water, and and mm-hmm. I mean, it's like water cooler talk. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, I do.
1: Yep. Which is the the for the Bible, the water cool the the well is is their version of
0: of Nightclub. like Tinder tinder it's that's where tinder. you go to
1: it's the tinder of the of the bible world
0: oh, wow i might actually say that on sunday <laughs> I hope that you do. If you're listening to this podcast, you need to cite me. Yeah, exactly. I'd be like, like, the well was the tender of the ancient world. It was. That's
1: where you go to meet somebody, somebody. Yeah,
0: yeah. So here's this woman at a
1: time that you know she thinks nobody's going to be there. And here comes Jesus. And she's probably shocked. She's like, what are you doing? Not only what are you doing here at this time of day, this is not the good time to come, but why are you talking to me? And if you're talking to me, does that mean you're trying to hit on me? And she realizes pretty quickly. She's like, you're Jewish. You hate us. So what does that mean? You obviously are not looking for a relationship. Are you here to shame me or use me or, you know, I just imagine all the things that are going on in this woman's head. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. Why is this guy talking to me? Is he, I'm threatened, I'm scared, I'm embarrassed. There's so many emotions that are being evoked. And Jesus says, what? Give me a drink. Here's Jesus now in a certain sense taking on the identity of corporate Israel. I'm thirsty. But instead of whining about it, he simply asks, a drink, I don't know if there's any mileage to that, but mm, I'm just like okay. Jesus' thirst is exp- is expressed. Yeah. The disciples go off into town. They're like, we're going to go to 7-Eleven and get some stuff. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me a Samaritan? Don't you know who I am? You hate us. You can't stand us. How are you even talking to me? What's, what's the matter with you? Um, It says, "For Jews have nothing in common with Samaritans." Now, of course, that's not entirely true, except half of our blood relationship, right? Except that we are actually siblings, yeah. But we're just siblings that have lost one another and are cut off and hate one another. Yeah, yeah. But there's an irony into what she's saying. There's a lot in common between Jew and Samaritans, but there's a wall put up, right? Um, Jesus said, "If you knew the gift that God was giving to you, and saying, saying, give you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water." If you realized who it was saying, give me a drink, you'd have said, no, 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 I need you to give me a drink. I'm reminded of John the Baptist, who was like, no, I don't want to baptize you. I want you to baptize me. Jesus is saying, you would say the same thing if you realize this. So she's like, well, you don't even have a bucket and <laughs> this well, is super deep. How can you give me any water? So she takes him literally, right? And she's like, are you greater than Jacob, our father, right? Who was who apparently the one who who founded that well or made that well. And Jesus is like, everybody who drinks from this well is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the the, the water I give him will never thirst. Jesus is clearly talking sacramentally, relating this back to the first reading, right? Uh, He is thinking sacramentally. She's hearing literally, I'm thirsty, there's no bucket, how much water are you talking about here? How deep is this thing? Jesus is talking sacramentally. No, there's a different kind of water for you to tap into. Um, Where do we go? Jesus said to her, She's like, oh, okay, well, well, give me this water because I don't want to be thirsty anymore. I'm really sick of having to come here in the heat of the day. So hook me up, Jesus. Yeah. And what does he say? He's like, okay, well, go and get your husband and then come back here.
0: Which would tricky. I mean, come on, tricky brother. He knows <laughs> what he's doing. Like, It's actually it's very interesting because it's rare that you see Jesus capitalizing on specialized knowledge.
1: Oh, I wonder if that's Is it rare? Because I feel like he does it a lot, but I can't think of any good examples. Maybe you're right. That's worth meditating
0: on. I mean, like, like he 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 knows yeah, everything. Yeah, but I it, guess you're right. But it's usually he doesn't actually yeah. like like act out of. it. I mean, uh, usually uh, as well because he does stuff. I mean, he knows about Zacchaeus. He's got. I mean, there are moments that yeah, are punctuated yeah, where, where he where he uses um, an extraordinary knowledge. But this one, he's like, he really seems to like. He's going for something. He's going for the jugular out of specialized understanding.
1: I don't think I don't think he's tapping into a specialized understanding here because i think i think culturally speaking if you're a woman going to the well at noon trying to avoid all the other women you're clearly not somebody who's living a very good life it's probably i i i think on a human level you could probably deduce this woman is probably living a pretty shady life so she's she's hooked up with a scumbag or she's a prostitute perhaps or she's you know any number of things um but I think I think there is a certain amount of human knowledge and logic that that Jesus could just be tapping into. OK, like, cool. Yeah. You wouldn't be here if you were living a, an upright, respectable family life. Something's something's up. Something Something's going on. So give me your husband. Yeah, because I'm sure you don't have one because you're probably a prostitute. Frankly, I don't think that's Jesus' intention, but I think that would have been. She knows that the jig is up. She's like, oh, geez, you, you you're on to me. So she's like, "I don't have a husband." And Jesus said, "Yeah, you're right in saying I don't have a husband. <laughs> Yeah, you're right, you don't." It's a funny tone. "You're right in saying I don't have a husband, for you have had 5 husbands."
0: See, that's the specialized knowledge that that's I That's the
1: specialized yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yes, what, you're I, right I, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there there yeah, there's two things going on. That one is like, mm.
0: It's like, I, got, "I know what's happening." But now, here's but, where it, but but this is the thing is that there's an interpretation Mm. that that he understands about Samaria Samaria as a whole about the adoption of five different gods.
1: Well, this is the thing. This is a biblical principle, oftentimes, or a a technique, I suppose. Oftentimes, and John loves this. John loves using this technique. Often one person, although they're a real literal person, I don't think she's made up or anything. Right. she's She's a literal person who represents and sort of embodies a number of people. Right. So in this sense, her job in the narrative is to embody northern israel it's right. to embody this people right she is real she has a real story she's a literal person but again she's made to stand in for something bigger than just her right, right? what's bigger than her well like we said i mean if you know the story of the northern kingdom the icing on the cake for the punishment for their huge sin was that they were intermarried with five nations oh
0: is that what it is
1: yeah okay wait are you joking No, no. I I thought you just said that before. I said five gods. Oh, well, those nations brought with them their gods, of course. okay. But specifically, they were called to—I mean, it's much more explicit than that. They were forced to intermarry. And part of the complaint that southern Israel had was, well, when Assyria made you intermarry with all those other pagan nations, you certainly didn't put up much of a fight. And you get the impression that they were happy as could be to go along with it and intermarry and throw away their identity and worship the gods that came along with it and everything else. At least that was the Jewish perspective on it. Yeah. So, yeah, you personally have probably had five husbands and, or five lovers or whatever it is. And so has your people because I know your history. And then you get the kicker. And the one who you have now is not your husband, which I don't think, and this is me, I don't think he's saying the one who you're living with, you're not married to. Maybe. That's a possibility. But literally in that moment, who is she with? Jesus. She's with Jesus. And there is a translation. You can either translate that as husband or as Lord. And Lord, and maybe it was because of patriarchal society, Lord was another way of referring to someone's husband. So you could read this actually grammatically as saying, the one who who you are with now is not your Lord or your true Lord. Whoa. she's with Jesus, who is actually not her Lord because she has not identified. Neither has the northern kingdom. Neither have the Samaritans recognized, even though they've married and gone after all these other gods and husbands and lords. They haven't recognized the one who is truly their God, who happens to be standing smack in front of this woman. Yeah, it's like I am. And then, you know, she goes on. She's like she, she seems to understand She's like, what you said is true. Sir, how can you, are you a prophet? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So there's debate. We understand we don't We don't get each other. The, the, North, the Samaritans, so the Jewish people all expected a Messiah to come back in the likeness of David, right? They expected a new king, a new Davidic figure to come forth. Absolutely. But in the northern... Reaches there was still expectation, but it was slightly different. They expected it was called the Tehom,
0: uh, not a dude new Jeroboam.
1: Not a new Jeroboam. He was a schmuck. But they expect it was it was called the Tehom, I think. Um, and what they expected was not really a Davidic king, because remember, there's pretty what's, big what's issues. What's the Tehom on this? It's the, more the, of a the home. Ah, yeah. uh, uh. that's good. It's a prophet figure, okay. and it's really more akin to somebody like Moses than David. That's oh, who they're okay. expecting, a oh. prophetic sort of lawgiver. That's what she's seeing in Jesus. Oh. She's like, I get that you're from Jerusalem, and you guys say you're supposed to worship there, but you sure seem like it's a home. You're a prophet. Who are you? He's actually me. And, and, of course, the reality is not just waiting for a new David, not just waiting for a new Moses. We're waiting for all of it. Jesus will take on all of those identities and yeah. pull them into one. So she's really tapped into something. Um, so they go on, and she she. it's this beautiful moment in which this woman inexplicably explicable through grace but nothing else she gets it and she's like i get it i see my eyes are opened i've actually because of the word not just the water that i've pulled out of this cistern, but because of your word i've actually been able to tap into the living water I've been able to access this water, not just with my bucket and my string, but because of the words in which you speak. And what's her response? She goes back into the village and uses her own words to convey this message, to tell everybody about it. And And, they are all persuaded.
0: And they're all drinking of the living water as well. Exactly right. The word is spoken and the well is untapped. Yeah. Or the well is tapped. The well is
1: tapped. Why is it tapped? Because it's already been tapped to begin with. Yes. And so the word, the mere word of God, evokes the well that's already been tapped and feeds us and gives us to drink. I was uh, I wanted to go into, there's a whole bunch of prophecies in the book of Hosea mm. that talk about Israel being in thirst and being led out into the wilderness and somebody coming who's going to quench their thirst, which is Hosea prophetically embodying the story of this woman and it was actually described in the form of she. He was called to marry a prostitute. And there's these prophecies. But I mean, I think she's she's getting what's been set up for her. I mean, I don't know how much she read Hosea, but there is this history and this tradition that predates her and him that she's recognizing, oh my gosh, everything that we have anticipated, everything that we've been waiting for is embodied in this guy. I get it. And it's at that moment that you can see her thirst satiated. By the living water that he gave her. Yeah. And of course, the only proper response, the only appropriate, the only holy response is to go and try to share that water with everybody else. Yes. And say, come to the well. Come to the living water. She is not the source of the water. And that's to be clarified. Right. It's not her word. It's her word that calls them to come and tap into the true source. And the most amazing part of the story is that everybody who hears her word is compelled to come and find him and tap into that living water, which is John's subtle way of telling his listeners, hey, maybe the Samaritans understand and are tapped in more than you think they are. Maybe there's more to your enemies than meets the eye. And maybe you should give a little bit more credit to your brothers and sisters and the way in which God actually wants to unite you and work with you together and bring you all home so that you can all sit around the well together. Which is kind of a beautiful image, too. And again, tap into this grace in which you stand. You can access it. I mean, this woman at the well is standing in the midst of grace. She is the embodiment. She is the image of Paul's words in Romans 5. She has access to this grace in which she stands. Because that grace is literally standing in front of her. You know, All she needs to do is access.
0: You know what's so beautiful, too, is that the substance of what Jesus, is, Jesus uses to unlock the, this living water, the substance of what he uses is the true history of her life and of her nation's life. Uh, which is yeah. which is the true history. It's not some sort mm-hmm. of idealized version. No, right. she's had a lot of relationship problems. Yeah. And the northern tribes have had a lot of problems with their nations faithfulness and, their, and, and, and faithfulness. And that, that it's actually it's precisely out of that surrendered material of her life that the Lord unlocks his profound love. Yes, absolutely. Like, like I, I just think that that's something that we can never mm. forget in, in our life is that, that surrendered sin, even at that level, it totally can unlock absolutely everything if we're courageous enough to, to surrender to God.
1: That's a really good insight.
0: That's a fitting note on which to end, I think. Word up.
1: Word on the hill.
0: Word
1: to you, Mo. All right. Well, happy third Sunday of Lent. You guys will be back next
0: week. Enjoy your St. Patrick's Day. Pray for us on the hill. It gets a little cray around here.
1: Oh, it's the, it's the weirdest day of the year in Boulder.
0: Dude. No. All right. See God you I next you. time, everybody. Bye. Bye.
1: The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.